Podcast 025, Animal Harvest, Mason Bees, and Livestock Guardian Dogs. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. So, I lost a bunch of video footage. Tragically, yep. Yeah. Um, you were out in the Seattle area. I was, I was yeah. I, I went out to Puget Sound, and um, I, I really scheduled way too much stuff. It was overwhelming. And, um, uh, and I was scrambling to get it all in and just trying to squeeze too much into every day. Well, and you were trying to change over your computer. And I was trying out a Mac, and it was, and that was kind of like it was a combination of me being stupid and the Mac thing. And so um, uh, somehow I moved it onto the Mac. I think that what happened was is that the Mac helped me out by putting it somewhere special. <laughs> then when I decided I'm not a Mac guy, I'm taking the Mac back. I copied everything to a jump drive that I had on the Mac, but I had been putting everything in one directory. And I didn't go looking around for other directories where stuff might have been put because I was sure I'd put everything in this one directory. Then I took the Mac back. They wiped it instantly. Right. I wanted to get it back out on the sales floor. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, I was racing out to take more video footage of more stuff. And then I got back to Missoula, and I realized that the video footage from the first... I don't know, several days of my trip was all gone. Yeah. And, uh, man, I'm still feeling the pain from that. That's a big ouch. The, the upside is there are so many cool people doing so many awesome things that you had all that opportunity to visit with these people and see these cool things. Well, right. And I'm, And I've had some cases where, I made the mistake of like when I'm holding the camera and I'm trying to take video of something, I keep trying to like look at it instead of look through the camera, and then the camera is like wandering off, <laughs> videoing a clump of dirt while all the action's outside of the view of the camera, and and so I've been trying to be better about that. In which case, I miss what's really going on, mm. but I tell myself. Well, later I'll be seeing it again as I edit the video. Right. So, you know, I'm not really missing it. Right. Although I am kind of missing it at the moment. Maybe someday you'll have a camera person operate the camera for you so you could do the interviewing and I all think, of that. Uh-huh. I don't think that's going to ever <laughs> happen. I, yeah. I think when we get to that point, I've gotten too big and, yeah. Yeah. I understand. Uh, time to do something else. <laughs> so I understand. Well, so we, since I tagged along with you to several of these video shoots, there are four of them we were going to mention. We're, right. So we should try and cover it. We should try and, while it's still at least a little bit fresh in our minds, see if we can get some of it recorded. Right. And then maybe I'll stop kicking myself for having so stupidly lost all of this. Right awesome footage and and uh and you know so much of it like for, so one of the things with livestock guardian dogs i've been trying to get good footage for a good video for that for ages now 
And the other big one for me was the um, the respectful harvest of a chicken. I you know, and it was like I could not. I could it could have not been better. That right. that one. I mean, that was a great class. I was just kind of thinking, this is so. I mean, I was going to race. I mean, I wanted to put the livestock guardian dog one together for a long time, but the respectful harvest of a chicken one was so good. I was, just, in fact, that's what happened. As I got home, and the first thing I wanted to do is put that video up. I was going to put the respectful harvest video up, and and then. Um, and I'm like looking all over, where the hell is that footage? And I'm digging through, digging through, and then it starts to dawn on me that it's gone. Well, well, so there's those two segments. You also interviewed, but you got podcast footage of that as well as the lost video footage of Dave Hunter, the Mason B guy in Woodenville. Right. And then the other one is the amazing Forrest Schomer out in Port Townsend about um, wild edibles, and and he does such amazing work with native plants. Right, so. right. And, you know, and this is a good a good point to point out, too, um, that people who listen to my podcast or watch my videos or um, read any of my rants on anything, um, I mean, that's, the, you know, one of the great things with the video footage that's now lost of Forrest Schomer is that you would have gotten a good example of what a um, – a normal permaculture person is like, <laughs> as opposed to me. <laughs> if you think all of the other permaculture people are like me, <laughs> then you're mistaken, and you're going to be happy to learn that they're not anything like me. <laughs> so they, ah. people like them. <laughs> so, uh, uh, all right, so let's, let's just start at the top and work our way through the list. We've got four from... We got the the stuff about the Mason bees, but unfortunately, I got a podcast of him, so we right. don't need to talk about it much. Although with the Mason bees, um, did there was just it was just amazing video footage. We got so much, and not only that, we got Mason bees mating. Oh my God! We got them. We got we got them coming out of their little. They they're not exactly they're not uh, little cocoons. The, the little cocoony things. Okay. We had one kind of hatching out. Wow. Of one of those. Wow. We had video footage of that. We also had video footage of a mating. So I was going to have another uh, animal porn movie. Uh, so snake porn. I did snake porn. And that's that's actually kind of because of your sister. I know. Yeah. 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 She she started with the slugs mating video. Right. Yeah. Like, Paul, Paul, have you seen this video? It's got slugs mating in it. It's so beautiful. And, you know, so then, of course, being the crude ass that I am, what slug porn? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but anyway, I you know, so we had bee porn, but uh, it's gone, gone, so, gone. So Dave Hunter, uh, he has a website crownbees.com. Uh, not only is he an amazing mason bee expert, but he's also working with um, some pollination issues for with uh, a national organization, I believe. I don't have the details on that in front of me, but uh, his Crown Bees website is incredibly informative. He has supplies for doing the Mason Bee stuff right, um, and I just think what he's doing is great. Yeah. So we, but he and I sat down and we did a full podcast. I think it was over an hour. Great. And you of, just of his stuff. pushed that up recently too. Yeah. 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 So um, and and in fact, uh, Bryce Moss. I should you know. 
think Bryce, he's like massaging the podcast. A lot of people were were complaining that the sound quality was crappy, and so Bryce stepped in and and he's he's cleaning it all up, and and so that way, if uh, if you get to the end of this podcast and you think what what's the big deal? There's nothing about then you could thank Bryce. <laughs> he yep. he did something to make it so that you don't give a damn about the sound quality, because. <laughs> Because if you did care about the sound quality, that would be that because I did it and I did a sucky job, and now you don't like the sound quality. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Bryce has been been a huge help. In that Kudos, yeah. Kudos, yeah. Bryce. So we went to a chicken processing workshop. Right, yeah. Alexia Allen, mm-hmm. and uh, a teeny tiny woman with a teeny tiny voice. And um, uh, she she's got uh, she but mad skills yeah mad skills now her day job is what she works she's an instructor at the Wilderness Awareness School and and she has uh, a little homestead uh, that she calls Hawthorne Farm where she's doing all kinds of um, homesteading projects and raising chickens and this was a chicken processing class for a homestead or a home scale. You know, if you have um, a flock of chickens for laying hens or whatever, meat birds or whatever, and you want to harvest a few of them, this was a way to do it by hand, pluck them by hand, um, and and figure out how to do it the right way. I I thought it would be great to get some video footage of it. Every time I've ever done... uh, um Chicken harvesting, it's always been on large scale, like, you know, 200, 400 chickens. Uh-huh. And um, so I, I thought, and then usually, and sometimes I'll send them off to be done, and uh, there were a few times where I helped in the process, but I, I have to admit, I have never processed a chicken by myself from start to finish. And I guess technically I still haven't because she only had so many chickens, and so you and I shared a chicken we did. to do this. Um but uh, uh, I, I thought it was, uh, uh, was going to be a great demonstration of uh, showing how to harvest a single chicken at home by yourself. Yeah. There were four couples there. We each took a chicken per couple, and uh, uh, it was amazing. I, I thought I'd be more squeamish than I was. Um, I thought it would be really hard. I had not harvested any animals before at all. And uh, I, I thought it would be hard, and it was. I was able to do it, and and I think that speaks highly of Alexia and her teaching style and her, her openness to wherever you were in the process with it. She was just, she was just great. She was great. Um, I I I thought the I, the the part that I thought was the most important part was, um, I mean, obviously she's done these so many times, and she's harvested many other animals. And, and as far as is, uh, wilderness awareness school stuff, I, I kind of got the impression that she's going to start doing that on her own quite a bit, but I'm not sure about that. Um, well, I think her plan, which her goal is, is to do homesteading full-time, I think. So, um, and to, I don't I don't know if okay. she's made it a, an official plan or anything. I don't want to say that on a podcast, <laughs> oh, okay. but, but I think, you know, she thought it would be lovely to homestead full-time, and I'm not sure if that's official or if she has a date or anything like that set for that, so I don't want to speak 
to that exactly. But but it could involve more classes. Um, they um, she built a barrel oven at her homestead as a workshop, and that was really cool. I lost some of the pictures I took of that, but later we went back and took video of it, and I still have that. Oh, good, good. Where, yeah, she's, yeah, all about wilderness and survival skills. She even started the Tracking. Yep. She mentioned that she has a lot of tracking, so so clearly she's, you know, done the animal harvest thing before, and I also lost footage of her talking about some wild edibles. We wandered around her property a little bit, Right. I think I think I remember eating big leaf maple blossoms. Right. And uh, I got you know and I got some video footage of a couple of different things. We saw a thing with uh, horses. She had some horses, and they were not eating the fresh nettles, which I but they ate everything else in this area. This this area that they were in, it was like stripped bare of all greenery except for a few nettles, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. That horses are not as keen on the nettles. Now, she said she'd feed them dry nettles, and they were fine with that. Yeah, she would harvest the nettles and dry them so for them in the winter. Mm-hmm. muzzle must be a little too sensitive to the sting or something. Mm-hmm. So. But back to the chicken processing. Right. Should we talk, talk a little more specifically about what that involves? She, I mean, the, the chickens, the funny thing is, is when taking the video, the, the, these chickens look like double their normal size because she is such a tiny woman. And um, uh, and she's got such a tiny voice, but she she would put the chicken in her lap, and then the chicken became calm, like you know, like their old friend. Kind of hanging almost upside down between her knees. Well, she almost. moved the chicken to that position oh, that's eventually, true. That's true. and and then she's kind of rocking in the chair a little bit, and and she's kind of stroking the chicken, and the chicken did seem to be totally mellow, like oh yeah. I could totally groove on this. This is this is a nice day, and uh, um, so after the chicken's nice and mellow, you, you see her hand slip down and she grabs the sharp knife and and uh, she uh, uh, cut the, the jugular on the sides of the head, but she wanted to make sure that the trachea stayed intact, and so the chicken could continue to breathe, pump blood, help it bleed out. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned that to my grandma, my 95-year-old grandma, who was laughing at me. She was like, well, we just knew how to do that on the farm. You didn't have to take a class to know how to slaughter a chicken. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, when you chop their heads off, they still bleed out, you know. But See, I'd use killing cones when I did mm-hmm. it. We mm-hmm. would just, you'd just drop the chicken inside of this upside down. looks like a traffic mm-hmm. cone, upside down kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're stainless steel. And then their head sticks at the bottom. And then um, I would just use um, pruning, you know, snips, you know. Snip off the head. And snip off the head. Um, and uh, um, I kind of thought her method was ten times more respectful, and and I really appreciated that. And probably better, probably better in many ways. Well, there was a part that she did where she would tap, tap, for a while on the jugular before she cut it. And I'm not really sure what the tapping was for her or for the bird, but there was something about that that seemed to make the process better for in her mind. I, I'm not totally sure what that was. Um, she did end up with her forefinger under the beak and her thumb behind the head and she kind of stretched out the neck a little bit, and she was kind of patting the chicken under the beak, and and she kind of pulled it out, and and uh, so she got the neck really well exposed, and then cut. 
Yeah. And I, in a way, I kind of like the idea of using the um, the snips. You, you know, using using the the, the pruning shears um, because then you know you've you know it's a quick kill. It's done. Right. Whereas um, with the knife, it's like you might have to take a couple of strokes, and then Which there's like happen, yeah. 30 seconds to 60 seconds of bleeding out. You know, and then I'm kind of thinking, you know, I, I liked the idea of being sure. I've also used a hatchet, but then you got to have two nails and a stump to hold the head, so that way, because otherwise they'll tuck their head in. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, don't good. do that. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's a stressful time on a stomp, you know, with a hatchet. Well, a bit, a big part of the whole process that she talked about that I appreciated was just appreciating the animal. I mean, if you're in appreciating the food that that animal is bringing to you. So if you're on a small scale and you're, you know, basically, and she didn't get overly spiritual or anything about it, but if you're basically appreciating the animal and thanking the animal for providing you with food, I I think that's a whole different space to be in than buying something from a shrink wrap package at the store. Or, you know, it's, it's just very, um, being a, a little bit more humble, a little more appreciative and, you know. And that kind of seemed to be part of her thing too. Yeah. Like she yeah. ate totally vegan except for food that she'd harvested herself. And she liked meat. So she needed to raise enough on her little homestead. And she had been for quite a while yeah. to keep herself in meat. Yeah. Yeah, and she... She really appreciated it. So, um, so the hens we harvested were layers, and they were, um, you know, reaching the end of their laying cycle. So, um, where they just wouldn't lay as much. Uh, so she felt it was time to make them into soup birds. Right. So um, uh, I remember that uh, when it, you know, because one of the things you do when you're harvesting a chicken, like after a year, after the chicken's bled out. Then, then you're going to scald. To pluck them. Okay. And, then, uh, yeah. and then pluck. And so we did the scald and the pluck. And um, the plucking was easier than I thought it would be. I thought Holy she had smokes. some good tips in that space, yeah. but I was kind of thinking, that was, that was good. I'm glad that I'm recording this on video, and when I edit it, I'll get to hear it 40 times. Because every time you edit the video, you end up hearing everything 40 All times. Tips. Right, yeah. And, and so this will be good. I, I want to remember that one. And now, of course, I can't remember what it was. Right, <laughs> right. But uh, there was something like uh, like how to tell when they've been scalded enough. Because it's like the water is oftentimes not just the right temperature, and then you don't just. So it's always I've always kind of found it to be a bit of a guess. And when you're processing a whole bunch of chickens, then it's kind of like, um, oh, it's it's getting too hard to pull the feathers out, so they need either more time in the water or the water needs to be hotter. Yeah, and she did have a good tip on that, and I don't remember what it was either. <laughs> so we'll have to do her class again. Everybody, know. come out to permies.com. <laughs> Tell us. Somebody knows. Right, right, <laughs> so, what the tip well, is. Well, I'll have to have a thread uh, at Permies about harvesting chickens. 
Well, and that's respectful a respectful harvest of chickens. That's what it needs to be. About. I I so wish Alexia would come out to Permies, but she's difficult just to get an email answered because she's either out in the woods, she's out teaching, or she's on her homestead with her gardens and her animals and. Um, and and she even uh, the patio where we did some where we did the plucking, she sleeps out there a lot of times on the patio just on those wooden slats out there because she'd just so much rather be outside. So she's a tough one. I wish we could get her on Permi. She'd be full of great information. True, true. She would she would be great. Um, all right, so we plucked. Yeah, and, and then we cleaned them, which was amazing. You know, I I just was so fascinated by how colorful they are inside, uh, and and this was just this lovely uh, free range um, fat that was so bright yellow. I mean, you get this pale icky stuff from the store. These people, these birds that have just been, you know, no sunlight, no, you know, just feed, and 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 then here her birds were just. So full of color and life inside. It was amazing. They weren't so gray. Yeah. Gray and lightless. Yeah, and and lots of really good chicken fat. Yes, lots and lots of chicken fat. She um, she supplemented their feed when they couldn't forage, and uh, or if she had to keep them confined and couldn't move them to another area with uh, a lot of sunflower seeds was something she fed them a lot of. Oh, that was another thing. It was when, we, when we dug into their gizzard and we found some sunflower seeds that they'd eaten recently, um, the other thing we found is inside their gizzard, what they found instead of rocks. So usually a chicken will get rocks and yeah. load it into the gizzard, and then that's what they use to break up seeds right, that they consume. Right. But instead of rocks, they found... Glass. But not just any kind of glass. It was windshield glass. Oh, right. And so she said that, like, when she moved on to the property, there was a broken windshield somewhere. Yeah. And so all the chickens, everybody else, they had glass in their gizzard, yeah. this windshield, safety glass. Right. Um, right. And so there's little, little uh, cubes of glass. Were in that gizzard, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, I guess that's, that's the optimal thing to put in your gizzard then is windshield glass. And I'm blanking on the, the part uh, where they store their food up in their neck. What is that called? Um, okay, we'll come back to it. We will? No, we won't. Yeah, you know, those were full of sunflower seeds. Right. The the little pouches up in their neck. What was that called? Anyway. Bird people know. Okay. Anyway, it's a bird thing. So, um, But she had really... Go no, no, no. That's another word for the stomach. Slang term for the stomach, no. I think. But um, so the insides were fascinating. She had some really good tips and tricks on making sure, you know, you're keeping the bird clean as you're cleaning it out so that you're not going to puncture things you don't want to puncture, especially the intestines or the... Um, There's a the, little gland at the butt, butt gland. That's right. We had to take that out where the oil, that was the oil they get to put on their feathers when they preen their feathers. Yeah, taking that out first. And then everything else, making sure you don't get bile all over the insides, which would make it so you couldn't eat it and things like that. And it was amazing to see how the chickens create their eggs because these were hens, laying hens. 
and the one we cleaned out had a whole egg that hadn't been laid yet. Right. Inside, right. As well as all the eggs, all the other eggs in the queue ready to be finished. Yeah, there's like finished. a dozen eggs in there at different stages of development. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And But none of the other ones had a shell on them or anything. Right. They were all like the right. uh, the egg yolk developing inside the, the hen. And, and all of the hens had that going on. And she was very good at talking about the parts of the animals she used and didn't use and why she used some things and didn't use other things. And, and it was very much, there's a really nice thread out on Permies about using the whole animal. Um, I think that was started by Leah quite some time ago or something. Uh, in the cooking, I think it's probably in the food and cooking forum. But... Um, so this was very much about that. I mean, she even liked to throw the trachea in the soup pot. You know, anything that would make a good broth, she would throw in the in the soup pot. So if it wasn't something she'd use for something else, you know, she'd do, a lot of times make chicken liver pâtés out of the livers and um, just and and then we, you know, after doing all the insights, then we did learned how to um, peel the feet. Right, and we all gathered around afterwards, and we were pulling off little toenails off of the feet, and, and peeling the rough outer skin right. off. To yeah, so those took a little dip in the hot water too to get that. To because peel them they off. make good stock. Yeah, and so um, and so yeah, there were some things where we put it into a bucket. That's like we don't want any of that, and then we had other things. We had a plate. We were putting everything on the plate that was all of the innards that we wanted to keep, right. including the fat. We kept all the fat. Oh, definitely. Yep. And she made a stock. Uh, she would make some of that, but she had some like rendered fat mm-hmm. that she had made earlier. And with the rendered chicken fat from earlier, she made uh, dandelion fritters. Right. So you went out and somebody else went out and collected up a whole bunch of dandelion blossoms. Right. And then um, she made some sort of batter, batter. Just a simple batter. Dipped them in the batter and then deep fat fried them in the chicken stock or whatever. Not in the stock, chicken grease. Chicken, chicken yeah, grease, the rendered chicken, chicken fat. Yeah. yeah, because she didn't have, I mean, she normally used some like a peanut oil or something else to do deep frying in, but she didn't have that, so she used what she had, the chicken fat. And they were good. Yep. They were yep. good, and she was serving them with maple syrup and... They were good chicken um, dandelion fritters. So, um, I, yeah, the, I know the one other thing you wanted to mention was her rhubarb out in her garden and back. Right. I took pictures and video of a bunch of, but yeah, the rhubarb, I thought it was really interesting is that, you know, a lot of times we'll plant a fruit tree or, we, you know, we'll work in a permaculture guild. Uh-huh. And her favorite guild plant was rhubarb. And so underneath every fruit tree that she had out of her place, which um, she was not trying to do an orchard, which I really appreciated. That's very much the permaculture way, is to not have an orchard. Uh, but under each fruit tree, there was a rhubarb plant, and, um, and I, which I think is great because um, a rub, I don't think a rhubarb plant would compete with a fruit tree. A rhubarb plant has a, a, a taproot, you know, uh, goes straight, straight, pretty much straight down. I've seen them at times going horizontally mm. instead of straight down, but that's not very often. 
and in which case, whereas the apple tree has a very shallow root system. And so, plus on top of that, the, the rhubarb plant is going to kind of smother out, you know, a lot of other plants are going to grow. And so then there'll be this patch under the fruit tree where there's going to be very little competition. Great. So that's great. Around another tree, when you took a walk with her later, I didn't join you guys, but um, there was a twig fence you mentioned around another tree. She uh, she she wanted to protect this one tree. It was a, an area where she put her horses in sometimes. So she wanted to protect this one tree from uh, uh, the horses nibbling on it. And of course, I told her about Sepp Holzer's bone sauce. But in the meantime, I thought this was you know pretty quick and easy and interesting. She had taken some branches and um, pounded them into the ground like little posts of of a sort. And then she wove uh, other smaller branches, you know, in and out of those branches, kind of like a wattle. And then um, uh, just built it up high enough that the horses wouldn't fool with it. So um, I, I thought that was um, real smart. Yep. Real smart. Yep. Yep. Was there anything else we wanted to say about her chick- chicken processing class? It was, you know, it was free. Some- it was free. Right. She just wanted the help getting her chickens in the freezer. So, yeah, she didn't charge us a dime. So, yeah. I thought I thought it was such helpful, useful information and, and made the process so approachable that, you know, I think if she does it again, I think she could charge people. Even if they're, you know, her chickens that she just wants help to get in the freezer, I still thought it was of high value. Yeah, I I thought it was spectacular. Um, I mean, I've I've I have been to a lot of different animal harvesting thingamajiggers, and um, you know, I've harvested a few animals of my own. I've harvested a lot of fish, and um, uh, but uh, I thought it was oh, it was so painful to have lost the footage. I mean, it was just <laughs> so good, especially the part because I really think that the big hop that the only people are going to have is going to be the um, the bloodletting, and um, uh, because after that it's like you know if you've ever had a chicken that you got from the grocery store and then you quartered it or something then it's like well that's kind of like that and and uh, uh, so everything beyond that I think anybody would be okay with it's just how to really right, right but but that one step that's the big step and I think one one of the gals over there didn't she kind of took her a while. Well, and, and part of it is she didn't feel, see, the the chickens, they would stay calm until they thought they had a moment of escape. And and, and she was really struggling in being able to feel, because they were, you know, nice-sized chickens, and, and she was struggling figuring out how to securely hold the chicken between her legs so that she could also, you know, get down there and use the knife right on the neck, you know, and so she was struggling with a good hold and then her legs got all tired and, you know, I think it was part the emotional thing, but I also think it was just physically she was afraid the chicken would fight her, you know, if it had a chance, so. I think there's a lot to be said for having like 20, 30 chickens or even 50 chickens and um, at the at the beginning of fall, because usually what you do is that you'll harvest a bunch in the fall, and then they sit in the freezer waiting until it's their turn to be soup. Um, but you know, in a way, it's it's kind of a smarter thing to do to 
Uh, if you don't have a freezer, for example, well, they'll still, they'll stay fresh out there, <laughs> you know, and and uh, it's just a matter of like I guess rather than paying for the freezer, you you know would need to make sure that they have feed, and and of course with permaculture, you know, they could self-harvest a lot of stuff for the winter and just make sure they have plenty of that. Um, but uh, uh, that would be one way to just harvest them one at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, although, boy, the freezer is mighty convenient. Right. Well, and there's some efficiency to. I suppose to um, doing a bunch at once, or if you are able to send them off to someone else to process them that has a plucker and things like that. But I was surprised. I mean, we took a long time doing the process because we were learning and asking questions, and and you know, and she would stop and explain a piece or whatever. But I was surprised even how quickly the plucking went. I just thought, wow, if you have to pluck. A chicken, that would be, you know, but, uh, you know, I was surprised at, at how easy a bunch of it was. Now, all the times I'd done it, it was all very production speed, yeah. very, very fast. Yeah. And and so that was one of the things I really appreciated about, you know, what we did at that at her event, Alexi's thing, and that is that, you know, um, very conscious of what you're doing, you know, it's it's far more important to do it right than to do it fast. And I, and I think when you're learning something like this, that's really the way to go. So often, um, the way that it's taught is like you're going too slow. You've you got to pick it up. You've got to go faster than that. You can't do it that way. That's too slow. You know, and, and I, I really appreciate the respectful harvest so much more than the stuff that I've participated in in the past. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, it was great. And I just remembered a weird little spot about the hairs. We had burned the hairs off the chickens. Oh, right. I didn't, I didn't know chickens had the, these weird little hairs hidden in among their feathers. So that was new. I didn't know that. The dogs? Yes. Livestock yes. guardian dogs. Yes. We went out and visited Greg and Dee Dee in Port <laughs> Angeles. We drove a long way. <laughs> Took a ferry. I was right. I, I was, and we did the we did the pig podcast on While the way we over were there. On the ferry, yeah. yep. And the to see their Northwest Farm Terriers and um, lovely, generous, lovely people and um, lovely dogs. I mean, I just kind of laid down in the grass with the dogs, and they came over and. Wanted to lay with me or on me, <laughs> so I mean, lovely friend. Well, of course, when we first dogs. arrived, they were not so lovely. Oh, of course not. No, yeah. Bark, 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 bark. Which yeah. is what they're supposed to do. Right, right. And then once they were informed that we were okay people, then you know they corked it. And, right. And then we're like, we're we're buddies. Right, right. And then they did. Uh, I mean, you walked down the hill with them and then walked back and they thought you were coming back on the property and started to bark at you again. Right, right. I'm the bad guy all over again. Yeah, and they they commented that that was kind of common, but they told them and they, they, anyway, they were, um, Greg just was full of lots and lots to say and and Dee Dee and um, they don't have as many dogs as they had in the past. Um, They had three that we saw. Um, and in the past, they usually had about nine dogs on their place at a time. They just truly 
love this breed and love the dogs. And they, they started this breed with, um, they had one dog, a male, that was an Airedale Terrier and a Border Collie, I believe. And then the female was Dee Dee's dog that was a Corgi and a Jack Russell. And uh, and so those dogs crossed, and that was the start of the Northwest Farm Terrier. So they they just really like the the herding, the her the intelligence of the herding dogs mixed in with the terrier, um, the the gameness. I think Greg described it, um, the gameness of the terrier um, with the intelligence of the herding dogs. And um, they just really feel that they have this dog that's ready to take on what it needs to as a livestock guardian dog and yet has the intelligence to be trainable and, and to socialize with the family and with the kids. So we talked at great length about comparing to a Great Pyrenees, yeah. which is the most popular livestock guardian dog breed now. And, um, and, and you know, we also talked about, because mostly what I wanted is that for a long, long time now, I've been feeling that I need to have a video that talks about the importance of a livestock guardian dog. And, um, uh, you know, and it's like there, it, there's just so much confusion in this space. Uh, homesteaders everywhere, it's like, oh, well, we don't need one because we already have a dog. And, and it's like, okay, 90, 98% of the breeds out there are a breed that's going to eat your chickens. You know, I mean, they're a dog. This is part of what they do. And a lot of them are bird dogs, and your chickens are birds. So this isn't going to work out. Um, but the livestock guardian dogs are an exception. And, and, and um, they've, you know, like for the Great Pyrenees, they've been bred for 3,000 years. Um, to where um, they have a powerful instinct to um, protect, you know, and, and so they'll, they will uh, die fighting a cougar to protect your chicken. And um, <clears throat> that's, I mean, that's so different than most other dogs. Yeah. Um, well, even, you know, I went to one place where we, their dogs, just got the pack instinct going. She had two or three dogs, and they started playing with one of the cats, and and they broke the cat's back just because they just got overwhelmed and all excited and and you know and that also happened. Uh, somebody else I know, her dog played, got in and got her rabbit and played with the rabbit and took the rabbit out. It just it just happens. They get that pack instinct, they get excited, they get playful, and they don't. So it's it's important. <clears throat> so what, you know, another thing that we had video footage of that um, was was an important point was the uh, the idea, I call it the, well, anyways, a lot of people do this thing, they call it the chicken moat. Uh. And, um, uh, and this is where you'll surround your garden by a fence, and then four feet out from that fence is another fence. And then your chickens can run between these two fences. They've got this four-foot-wide thing around your garden where they can go out there and they can eat all the bugs. Mm -hmm. And usually the fence that's used, because chicken wire is not strong enough to keep a raccoon out, but 
So they've got usually people use this two inch by four inch welded wire. Um, and um, uh, if you do not have a livestock guardian dog on your property, I, I refer to the chicken moat as the weasel feeder. And um, and so uh, um, you know, Greg and Dee Dee were full of stories about weasels and and um, and getting hobbies. into their coop and. Yeah. And their dogs would, you know, were trying to get at them in the chicken coop at one point, but the the dogs were locked out of the coop, and they couldn't get at the weasels and get the weasels away from the chicken. That was the only, you know, but especially with those those rat terrier breeds in in this dog, they definitely wanted to get Yeah, those yeah. Out, and a lot of times if the there. dogs are already there, they will detect yeah. an animal coming on, and then they'll be able to, yeah. to do something about it long before the the predator comes anywhere near the chickens. Yeah, they they had some great stories about the coyotes. Um they're in an area where there's a lot of coyotes and they've got heavy predator pressure of all kinds. Yeah, they've got yeah. like everything. Yeah, bear, they have black bear, they eagles, have, lots ooh, of eagles. Yeah, and yeah. and that was an amazing thing about their dogs. Their dogs were were taking on the eagles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I liked the one story where um, the coyotes had had started to pull them in the two directions, and and one had snuck in and grabbed one chicken, uh, but the terrier caught the um, coyote and bit him hard enough that he released the chicken, and the chicken lived. You know, so I mean that was that was a close call with the coyotes, and then later they um, uh, two or three of their dogs took out a coyote right in front of their neighbor. Oh right, that was a good story. Right, too. and then the neighbor was like, the, right on. Yeah, the neighbor <laughs> sounded like she's kind of a salty gal, and and it's yeah. like. Hell, I should have watched TV. I've got a great show right out in my driveway. Yeah. So apparently the, the dogs were chasing the coyotes and, and finally nailed the coyotes. Or was there one or was there several? I thought there was like more than one. Right. I, was it I, think, one it was, I think it was two or three of their dogs, and the one coyote had been a particular problem, and they were they left their jumped their fences to go after this one because they were so frustrated with this one coyote keep trying to get get the chickens especially. So they uh they finally I think they left the property to chase this coyote down and ended up trapping it and catching it uh and killing it in front of the neighbors. Right. House. This woman apparently the woman <laughs> yeah. saw the whole thing. She right. saw them told them all about catch it. Catch it and kill it. Right there. Yeah, right there. And so uh, it's like, uh, just in case you're wondering who killed the coyote. <laughs> it was your dog. No, no doubt. It's the, it was that Northwest yeah. Farm Terrier that did it. So. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think they normally left the property, but it was just this one coyote was such a problem. That and they, he had it coming. <laughs> yeah. It took a, so uh, yeah. Um, it sounds like they have a lot of predator pressure, and they talked. They told stories about all kinds of different predators mm-hmm. in the area, and the, the dogs did their job and protected the chickens. And then when we were there, the chickens were out and about, and um, they, 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 you know, and apparently they do this regularly. They turn the chickens loose, and then the uh, the dogs protect them. And um, uh, the, the one of the so I. One of the things that I thought was amazing is that while these are not a tiny dog, they were they were nowhere near as big as a Great Pyrenees. 
Right. And and so the one thing I was kind of thinking is is that there was there was two big benefits I was seeing. One was is that um, uh, they're one third the size, so that's one third the dog food bill. Yeah. Then on top of that, um, they've got terrier in them, and so you know they love to eat rodents. And so then I'm kind of thinking, you know, there might that might eliminate the dog food bill. And I was thinking that was kind of groovy. I liked <laughs> that. Well, um, well, and what they really liked is is that they were more of a family friendly dog, and they they True. could trust them with their kids and grandkids. That was really important to them, and that's that's what they've heard other people like about their dogs. The um, they had the father and the son of this one litter. And uh, she said people call up and they actually want to talk to the one pup from this one litter. She had uh, three boys in the litter that she had named Billy, Bob, and Thornton. <laughs> and they right. kept Thornton. And um, and he was just a very personable and personality-plus dog. So, Well, yeah, they were saying that they felt that these dogs were far more family-friendly than Great Pyrenees. But I right. thought... I've always felt Great Pyrenees were, were really very family-friendly, but I think that's been my personal experience. But I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with just being personable with it. Like the, as a puppy, you start with a puppy, and then you, you know, treat the dog really well, and then it's a very family-friendly dog. And you don't ever, a livestock guardian dog, you never chain up or contain a livestock guardian dog. You're just looking for trouble if you do that. Well, in that almost any breed, I think you increase aggression and increase poor behavior if you chain them up. I just don't think that's a healthy thing to do for a dog. So I, yeah, and um, uh, so they think that the dog is friendlier than the Great Pyrenees. And so there would have to be more of these dogs out there for me to be able to get my head wrapped around, you know, to hear back, get more feedback on that. Right, and currently... um, Greg said there's about 300 of them, uh, and and he's been a little disappointed um, that uh, quite a few of them have been um, neutered or, or or fixed so that they can't continue the breed. You know, he's been wor- it's a, it's a, it sounds like it's a fairly casual network of people that have the Northwest Farm Terriers. Um, and and he's encouraged people to make sure in their breed in the original breed so that you're not inbreeding, you know, you've got to keep the lines healthy. So he's encouraged people to breed in more Airedale, the Border Collie, uh, the Corgi, the Jack Russell. Um, and I'm pretty sure those are the four breeds he mentioned. So um, he's he's really had a huge interest in this breed continuing because they like it so much and they've heard such excellent feedback from the people who've had this line. So about 300 and he's he's currently, didn't you say he's currently looking for an intact, more intact right. male? Right, he, he called me the other day and, and um, yeah, so he's, he's making the call to try and find intact males. Yeah. But um, and and it sounds to me like um, um, they really want to get some some breeders going. He he was saying that they were selling the dogs, uh, selling the pups for three hundred bucks a pup. But I know that Great Pyrenees folks are selling their their dogs for five hundred a pup, 
And um, oh I I would think that um, you know somebody who is really good at this and really smart about it could probably get you know a thousand bucks a pop. So I would say the thing to do would be to be to get a breeding pair, and and then you know I I think with a little marketing you could get a lot more money per dog. And I like the idea of like because I, I really believe that you should probably if you have acreage you really ought to have uh, at least two dogs if not three. And um, I think it would be good to have one be a great peer, because the great peer is going to have the size, and the great and so then you know and that's a big part of it is that if you've got a great big dog patrolling your property, that's going to keep away a lot of it. Well, and I think they, uh, from what I've heard, and I have not had the experience you have had, um, it's it sounds like the great Pyrenees probably is more instinctual about what they do a little bit more than the Northwest Farm Terrier. I think the Northwest Farm Terrier, the breeds in it are it have instinct, like the gameness he talks about, to take on the predators uh, and the pests. Um, and then they also have the intelligence to know, okay, this is part of our group, you know, the shepherding dogs. They know, you know, you don't take out the chickens, you don't take out the sheep, you know, you, you care for them and you... you you keep them all together and you protect them, you know. So there, there is instinct in those lines, but I think, I think the advantage with the farm carrier sounds like it's, it's, it's more um, trainable in that sense. Where it sounds like the Great Peer, it's not about training; it's their instinct. Well, you know, I visited with them at great lengths okay. about the details of that. Okay. And I got the impression that they're the same. Oh. Because with the Great Pyrenees, you know, you don't you don't formally train them, but what you do is you kind of say, you kind of make it clear to the Great Pyrenees, these animals, they're part of our family. Right. This is part of us. Right. And then, um, and, and then you know, look over there, that's not us. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, uh, and so then you you, you kind of start to get this uh, the, the the dog picks up. Hmm. That you're trying to protect or you know chase off or or whatever, and then the dog will protect the family, which includes the chickens and the goats and the sheep and the cows and whatever else. The pigs will be fine by themselves, but you know kind of understands who's part of us. Right, right. And 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 my impression is is that it worked almost exactly the same for the Northwest Farm Terrier. Okay, I stand corrected then. And so they called that training. Yeah. You need to train. Yeah. This is us. Yay us. Right. And, uh, you know, eagle. Go get it. Go get the eagle. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's right. So. And then both of you did talk about, you know, with both of those dogs, you let them know they are not to manhandle the chickens or, man, you know, you let them know in no, sun, no but, uncertain terms that that's not okay to be rough with the With the Great Pyrenees. It almost happen, it happens every time. And now you were talking about this earlier, and then, you know, and I want to add this. So now, now I want to add this, and that is that at about nine or ten months of age, the Great Pyrenees will play with a chicken and break a leg or something like that. And then you say, bad dog! And they totally get that, and they're mortified. And and I've uh, and my understanding is from talking to everybody, it happens once, maybe twice, rarely twice, 
But I've had some people uh, who've asked me, like, uh, oh, no, my Great Pyrenees did this, do I have to put it down? And it's like, no, this is part of it. The, you know, the animal the will learning. do it yeah. once. Yeah. And, and then, you know, now you're set. Now the dog is set. Mm-hmm. So you'll, and you'll be fine from there on out. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if the if the Northwest Farm Terrier was the same way. Well, I think Greg and Dee Dee talked about that. You know that you teach them no. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, no. That's, you know that's not happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems to me like the training when we went over the training, it seemed like it's and, and you, you're inadvertently training the animal. And of course, once you have the animals established and they're doing it, then if you bring in another dog. The the uh, the old guard will teach the new guard. Uh-huh. So, but the thing I was trying to say earlier uh-huh. is the idea of um, you know about ten minutes back, I would have one Great Pyrenees and two Northwest Farm Terriers because you know you got to have at least two dogs, and um, uh, the idea is is that the coyotes will try and draw off the dogs, right? But the dogs are smart enough to know this trick. Yeah. And so one will go chasing off the coyotes that are attempting to draw them off. And then when the other coyotes come from behind, the other dogs are ready to take on those coyotes. Well, they're, yeah. not, they're not, you know, leaving the guarding of the animals while another animal goes to chase coyotes. Right. So it seems to me that if you've got, um, uh, you know, one Great Pyrenees is going to be a big dog, makes a big presence going around, um, and then you've got the smaller dogs that will basically do the same thing, the smaller food bill, but you know you still have your your you know your numbers. I, I think you've got an optimal system. Now your fences don't need to be as tight, you know, or as numerous or as as frequent or whatever. You've you're you're well protected. Now you know you know that converts your weasel feeder into a chicken moat. Now your chicken moat can work as designed. Um, and, and that was, you know, there's, there's, one, there's one good point to bring in about the weasel feeder. I've, I've had people with chicken moats that say, well, we've been running chickens in there for two years now. We've never had a problem. And, and this is something that, you know, was part of the video that I did with, with Greg was is that, no, 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 you haven't had a problem yet. And you've got 50 chickens right now. You'll come out one morning and you'll have zero. So it's not like the weasels come and leave a calling card and say, oh, by the way, I'll be by tomorrow to kill your chicken. Or, oh, by the way, I killed one chicken last night. I might come back tomorrow night and kill another. No, they come in and they kill them all in one night. They're all gone. And, you know, whose fault is that? I mean, you put the, whoever it was that put them in the cage and, and whoever it was that set up the weasel feeder and put the weasel food in there, that's the person who's to blame. And so if you're going to be taking care of chickens, take care of the chickens. Be a responsible uh, animal husbandry person, you know. Do a good job. So then that means that, you know, have a complete system. And that's going to be that if you're going to do that kind of thing, if you're going to be out in a high, pre- and, you know, that's another thing we talked about too is, is high predator pressure versus low predator pressure. Some people can, can raise chickens or whatever animals, and they can just go pee on some fence posts or something, and that's good enough to keep the predators off because there really aren't any. Right. Well, even in urban areas, there can be incredibly high predator pressure with raccoons or rats or, things, you know. Uh, it's Yeah, it's it's very interesting, the different predator pressures. 
Right. It's, it's a very important component. Now, when I was at Mount Spokane, we had very high predator pressure. We were told that uh, nobody in the area was has been able to raise chickens for like 10 years. Now, when they brought out their female, which was a bit smaller, so she was even smaller than the males, and, uh, and they started uh, throwing the tennis ball for her. And, oh, man, was she fast. That was pretty amazing, watching that animal she move. She was so fast. Lightning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, I thought you made a comment about that and the advantage there would be to them being smaller and so fast, you know, might be. I thought that that was, a fa- I was you know, probably faster than a Great Pyrenees. But, you know, the one, I had a female Great Pier, and she was a smaller Great Pier. Right. And, I don't know, she seemed, it seems like she did a lot of lollygagging, but she was not a ball chaser. You could throw, like, you know, because the, the, the animal that we saw was a ball chaser. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Um, the the one that I had, uh, you'd throw the ball, and she'd look to see where you threw the ball and look back at you like, why did you do that? <laughs> that was a perfectly good ball. <laughs> right, right. You're kind of stupid, aren't you? <laughs> right, right. In a, in a godly sort of way. Right, <laughs> you know? right. But but uh, uh, so not a and so she she kind of had a very uh, low key loungy kind of thing. But I know that in the middle of the night I could hear the coyotes start yipping, and then I'd hear, <clears throat> and that was the that was the Great Pyrenees dog zipping by the window at 100 miles an hour. And then you you're, you're kind of like sitting in sitting in bed going wait for it, wait for it. Pi pi pi. Oh, she nailed him. <laughs> So uh, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, you don't, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to see the the, the Great Pyrenees going at full speed. Um, and to, to compare it with the farm terrier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, all right, we got lots of awesome video footage there of the dogs, and of course, it was a beautiful day. Um, beautiful oh. background. When I was taking oh, the video, yeah. I was like, "Oh, look at this field here." This Just is, a you know a flower dotted rolling meadow with fruit trees in bloom, and oh my gosh! It's not like we could go back there, you oh. know, some other time and get as good a video. It yeah, was, it just can't possibly be as good as the video that I lost. Oh right, right. Which brings us Painful. to the next one. Yes. Oh, so we spent time with Forshomer. And and he took a big patch of land. What was it? Three acres? Is that what it was? It was it was this big. It, but it used to be the uh, Native American. Oh, you're talking that. Yes. And, uh, and he did all the work to restore it back to the way it was, like 500 years ago. Well, well, let me back up a moment and say who Forrest Schomer is for people who don't know. Okay. So he's. He's been a seed saving expert and a native plant expert and he's he's just and a just a huge um educator and and amazing amount amazing person of knowledge in the in the northwest area. He has insidepassageseeds.com. Insidepassageseeds.com is his website. And um you can learn more about Forrest Schomer there. And Schomer is S H O M E R, forest with one R. So um, he was generous to spend a lovely, lovely afternoon with us after we visited the farm terrier folks, and it was just a gorgeous sunny day. I got so sunburnt that day, <laughs> but it was lovely. And um, yes, so the amazing. Speaking of meadows and wildflowers, it's the Katai Prairie Preserve. 
it's the um, thousand-year-old meadow at a golf course in uh, Port, Port Townsend. So he was telling us all about how it wasn't just a meadow, but it was it was a native managed meadow. Right. For and this is where it was native agriculture, not not native hunter gatherer stuff. Native agriculture, and he restored it back to the way it had been managed previously. Right. Including taking out all the non-native invasives, you know, so every dandelion came out, every thing that wasn't there before is all gone. All and so it's like, man, that had to be a lot of work. And, and the, then when we're there and videoing him talking about this, the camas was in bloom. I know. So blue blossoms everywhere, and and then he was we we had him. And that and chocolate him. lily was in bloom. Oh, too. we got pictures of that. That's right. Is that what it was called, the chocolate? Yeah, I lily? got I got pictures. Yeah. I got video. I got all these different species, and him talking at great length and awesome detail about so many different things. Yeah. And that's all gone. Yeah, that was just <laughs> one of the locations we were at with Forrest. It was in. It, yeah, he went into detailed stories about the natives would um, canoe over to this site, and they had managed and maintained it with uh, managed burns, you know, because the Native Americans harvest the camas bulbs, you know. Right, and they would burn back the conifers. Yeah. So there would continue to be a prairie spot here. The, right, And the conifers the would move in. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, of course, well, anyway, he talked a great length about how they did it, what you know, what all they did, what were the things that they would eat, what were the things that were the foods that were growing there, and how it produced you know throughout the the harvesting season. It was incredible. It was it was very permaculture esque. How the natives did it, it was very impressive. Um, and damn, that's gone forever. Now, of course, he, we went to two other sites with him, but that was my favorite right. site. Right, and and you could tell this was just a jewel for Forrest, too. I mean, he had such passion and, and um, love for, you know, not to sound overly sappy, but he did. He just he just had such passion and knowledge and, and, and desire to share and learn about this wonderful space. And, I mean, where else? Didn't you call it? It was like a, a, an outdoor museum. It was like a museum piece right. of these native plants you just don't see every day, and you don't see them in very many locations, especially the way this was maintained and the varieties and the um, – anyway. So, yeah, a living museum. Yeah, living and and it's it's going to take a lot of work to keep it that way because there's going to be of course you know all kinds of non-native plants blowing in there that you know because I imagine that the natives they burned back the, the the conifers and they encouraged certain plants in the prairie but uh, they didn't have to deal with the the invasives that we have today right and and so um, there probably was very little work and then a lot of food came out of it. Right. Um, and uh, and so in the permaculture world, we tend to like, okay, we'll let that plant over there go, this this weed dandelion. You know, it's not native here, but we're going to let it go because it'll actually help. Right. Um, or we want to eat the greens or we want to use the root. You know, there's things we want to use from it anyway. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not allelopathic. It's not hurting anything. Right. So we're going to leave it there. A lot of people get the idea of like, oh, it's going to compete. And it's like a lot of them 
they, they compete in a way, but they generally, you know, contribute more than they take away. So, you know, we'll leave them there. Um, and so doing what Forrest is doing on that piece of land is a much harder job now than it was 500 years ago. Yeah. And so it was just amazing to see. And we also, so he, he took us on a tour of his yard at his yes. place. He had started with a monkey puzzle tree. Yes. And, and uh, we talked about the monkey. And then he, uh, he had an interesting use for the branches he was taking off of there. Oh, right. Right. And this, this I don't know if anybody's seen this monkey puzzle tree, but, but uh, they're fairly common. They are a crazy-looking tree. And it's like the, each branch is covered in these leaves that have like a, a thorn on the tip of the leaf. Yeah, it's like a cactus tree almost. I mean, that's how sharp and, and, and hard it is. Yeah, And in uh, Port Townsend, there's some urban deer. They have deer everywhere. Right. And we saw lots of them in town while we were driving through town. And uh, but the deer do not care for the monkey puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> right. So right. he was he was working it out so that this monkey puzzle tree was eventually going to create a place where he could grow a garden that the that the deer would not touch because it would be right. surrounded by monkey puzzle. Right. Which I thought was an interesting approach. Yeah, he wanted to use the branches, so he wanted to discourage the deer in some areas and and let the deer be and let the deer come through in other areas. So right. In other parts of his yard, much. apparently the yeah. deer loved it there and um, stayed at his place a lot. Right. Right. So, um, and and then he kind of took between that uh, and he uh, insisted he never waters his lawn. And of course, everything that's growing there, I believe, was native. Was was? Did he have anything in his yard that was not native? Well, I don't think parsley's native. He had some things that weren't native in his yard. So, uh, but he he had ways of letting things just self sow, and encouraging things some places, discouraging things other places. He had a really lovely way of working with things. He had. Nettles in the corner. He had miners lettuce somewhere else, um, and he said so many just eloquent things on how to naturally encourage things or discourage things. It was lovely footage you had. <laughs> yeah, that's gone now. Yeah, and I was yeah. I was kind of thinking that I was gathering a lot of really great stock footage. Like I don't know if I'm going to make a video this into a video right away. Probably not, but. I'll combine it with other videos, you know, and I'm thinking, boy, I'm, I'm really building up material for future videos, and I don't know what video yet. And I was thinking, this is awesome. I'm gathering sort of Then he took us down to the beach. Right, which is another huge native plant restoration area where they were preserving um, this dune that offers some protection uh, you know, between the beach area and the and, and as you move away from the beach, there's kind of this dune they were trying to preserve, and they, he and other native plant volunteers done a ton of work, and he was just so thrilled. There, there was the tiniest wildflower I'd ever seen. Was oh, it called blue eyes or something? I don't remember. I, I videoed it, so I wouldn't have to remember. I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. So, and he was. This is another area you could tell he. Um, they, they, there were parts that the native plants were being trampled and 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 dying away, so that then the the sand and soil was getting blown or washed away. 
so they they set up a path to just leave a pathway to to protect the native plants and um boy and he had so much history about port townsend and that area of um the park and the beach and and about the how the native americans come in with their canoes and i mean just so much knowledge so much you know it was an amazing tour on the ocean with Forrest. I mean, just a lovely, lovely oh. person and tour. I, I had to uh, to dig into the sand a little bit and hang out. Right. And I don't know, just get grounded there. It was just felt good to just sit on the beach and look at the ocean for a while. But um, uh, I got video footage, or I should say, I lost video footage of he and I did a bunch of stuff about Scotch Broom. Yeah. So now the Scotch broom is something where it's an interesting permaculture plant in a lot of ways because it's considered a noxious weed. The word noxious basically means the government wants it to not be there. Um, it's it's you know it sounds like it, it rhymes with toxic or something. Like you think oh noxious, that word means poison or something, doesn't it? But actually all all it means is the government is against it. <laughs> right. That's all it means. Right. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's, it's it's a it's a plant that the government says is bad, but it's a legume. And it fixes nitrogen. Um, it, it's a, it, it pops up in a lot of places where there's like not much else going on. So it's considered a pioneer species, isn't it? Something that right. kind of comes in and restores the land right. w- when the soil is poor. It comes in and its job is to increase the fertility of the soil. Build basically. the soil, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, uh, and Forrest, I got a lot of video footage of Forrest explaining how he feels that, um, you know, let's, let's not encourage it. In fact, in this area, he spent a lot of time getting rid of it. He was talking yeah. about, like, dump truck loads of right. broom that they had pulled by hand right. and got out of there. And, and he's a big fan of replacing it with native lupin. Yeah. And um, you know, which does pretty much the same job, uh, but it's like uh, Scotch broom. He believes, you know, because it's a tall, it can get to be really tall, that it'll outcompete stuff. It'll mean basically it'll out, it'll shade it out because right. it's so tall and thick. Right. So um, whereas I'm kind of thinking chop and drop. You know, you go in there and you cut it down, and and then um, uh, it'll it, you could use what you've cut down to smother the plant itself. Yeah. Well, and I don't know, I, I don't know, I've never tried that with Scotch broom. I kind of wonder how much it could sucker back up again because those get pretty woody, the the bases of those. And and the lupins, however, which, he, you know, are just very different and I... Right. And, they grow, they're low-growing. Yeah. 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 He, was, he was a big fan of the lupins. and We saw some of those just starting to come out and just starting to bloom. But it was... Yeah, there were little native sedums at the beach, the native reeds, the native grasses, and just wonderful. He, um, he's going to be doing a radio program on uh, a local port on Port Townsend stuff because he's a big fan of Port Townsend. Um, fascinating man. So it was awesome footage. The chickens, the bees, the the livestock guardian dogs. The, the native plants, the camas in bloom. Right. And it's all gone. Right. It's all uh, 
Uh, yeah, and out of all of those, we didn't talk a lot about the bees, the Mason Bee Guy, Dave Hunter, because you did have the podcast with him. Right. But um, hopefully we can do another workshop with Alexia sometime and then maybe make another trip out to see Greg and Dee Dee and their farm terriers sometime. But um, and and Forrest, he he taught a seed gathering um, and seed and wild edibles type class at the Permaculture Convergence, uh, and maybe he'll appear at other events like that coming up too. Who knows? Right, right. And and uh, he's gonna. I mean, if nothing else, I believe that with his Inside Passage seeds, I I believe he sells seeds for a lot of native plants. So that's kind of the thing is like a lot of this stuff, it's kind of hard to get it reestablished or whatever, but he's out there collecting the seed and, and, and you know, planting seeds. So um, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was really fascinating. Really interesting. Yes, yes. Very impressive. Very much. It was good day. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about harvesting chickens, livestock guardian dogs, wild edibles, and permaculture all the time. <laughs>